the screens behind me. We're reading from Matthew chapter 23, which if you're using the Pew Bible, you can find Matthew chapter 23, starting in verse 1, on page 700, 700. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So you must obey them and do everything they tell you. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted in the marketplaces and to have men call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have only one master, and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called teacher, for you have one teacher, the Christ. The greatest among you will be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who en- those trying to enter to do so. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides! You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! Which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on it, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears by it and by the one who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You clean 
the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, then go outside, then the outside will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You build tombs for the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our forefathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the sin of your forefathers, you snakes, you brood of vipers, how will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth. From the blood of righteous Abel all the way down to the blood of Zechariah son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. I tell you the truth, all this will come upon this generation. O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me once more? Father, help us again, we ask, to see at least some of the things that you're showing us in your word through this passage. Help us by the presence and the all-sufficient working of your Holy Spirit through your word. Help us to know how not only to understand these truths, but also how to apply them in each of our lives, and how to apply them as a church. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I've entitled this sermon, Jesus Has the final word. Last week we um, looked at another large portion of scripture and I had entitled that 
cross-examining Jesus. And we had seen that the, um, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, all of these um, people had come together to essentially try and put Jesus on trial. In fact, Jesus' whole life was basically nothing, nothing but testing, especially by these religious leaders. But we saw at the end of that chapter, <laughs> in verse 46 of chapter 22, these words, no one could say a word in reply when Jesus questions them. No one could say a word, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So what we're seeing now is, this, in a sense, in the temple courts, it's as if Jesus has taken over the whole courtroom, and he's having the final say. And there's no discussion anymore. And so we see here Jesus having this final word, in a sense. And there's three things that I want us to kind of see, three points that I want us to think about. First of all, the context, and then the character, and then creation. Three C's, the context of what's happening here, the immediate context, the covenantal context, and the eternal context. The character of Christ and these crowds that he's teaching and everyone included in that crowd, even his believers. And thirdly, the creation of something that we'll think about more in that third point. So again, the, the leaders of this day have, have failed to silence Jesus. And so he begins to, after silencing them, teach those who are following him. And you notice in the beginning of verse 20, in, in the beginning of verse 1 in chapter 23, these words, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, and you see Matthew, again, he keeps using these two uh, people groups. He defines these two groups throughout the whole Gospel of Matthew. The crowds and the disciples. Um, they're all people, obviously. But he's showing this very clear and very serious division that is simply marked by one thing. Faith in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Makes you a disciple rather than just part of the crowd and Bear in mind, the crowd are people who are also following Jesus around. That is important. So Jesus is teaching all of them the same thing. And then in this first point here, context, just keep in mind this immediate context that I've already started to talk about. But there's also, there's a covenantal context. What I mean by that is in the gospel account according to Matthew and in all the gospel accounts, Mark and Luke and John. These Gospels, as we call them, are basically Gospel accounts, meaning accounts of the good news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and ascension. And they sit right between what we call the Old Testament and the New Testament. They, they come right on the heels of 400 years of prophetic silence, where God has not spoken a word to His covenant nation Israel so there's a covenantal context the new covenant has not been brought in yet it is established this new covenant which we become part of by faith today has not been established that happens by Jesus's 
um, death and resurrection ultimately. So Jesus, as I might have said before, he kind of stands over the border of these covenants, one foot on one side, one foot on the next, and brings the new and the lasting covenant in after dying and rising again. But there are certain things that he wants to clarify before he goes to Calvary. So these are the, the, the first two contexts that we need to keep in mind. But secondly, there's the eternal context, which has to do with the purpose for which God made us in the first place. God made man in his likeness and image to dwell with him, to commune with him, to be his people and for him to be our God. And before sin entered, the Garden of Eden can be understood as a type of, if you will, temple garden in the sense that what the temple was built to do, the sacrifices and the the, the clearest manifestation of God's presence in the middle of His people. That happened naturally in the garden before we became sinful. And so the eternal context is that Christ is both through His teaching here and through what He's heading to do at Calvary, trying to bring us into that. So as we keep this first point in mind, the, the context, I want to jump straight into the second point, the character of Christ. The first few verses teach us a little bit about the context. Again, we see um, there's the crowds and the disciples. In the second verse, he says these words, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses's seat. So do what they say, but not what they do, because they don't practice that what they preach themselves. In saying that they sit in Moses' seat, and in saying that we should do as they teach, because they're trying, as far as um, it goes with, with teaching the word itself, they're teaching the truth of it. But that reference to Moses' seat is a position of authority. It's a seat of prophetic authority. Anyone who was in that office, in that role, who basically would speak on behalf of God to the people and say, Thus saith the Lord, possessed a type of authority. And there's an important lesson that we have to remain believing or come to understand for the first time. And I'll get more into detail perhaps um, later, but this is the point that I think Jesus is driving here. The offices which God established establishes or has established those offices themselves even if for some reason you don't feel like you can respect the person in that office you're commanded to respect the office and to adhere to the proper administration from that office regardless of who sits in it so Jesus amazingly the creator of the universe is giving respect to the functioning of that office while saying what he's about to say, even though a bunch of hypocrites and blind guides are sitting on it. And so we move into the character of, of Jesus and these religious leaders of the day. One of the things that I think stands out to me in this passage is that Jesus is actually... I think angered 
He's, he's, he's really moved by the way that the leaders are failing to fulfill their offices. Again, the Pharisees and the scribes would have been people who essentially were like, like me and my fellow elders today. But there's a huge difference. Nobody else had access to the eternal, life-changing Word of God. And so there was an even greater, in a sense, there was an even greater need for them, for them to be faithful to this Word. And not to add or take away from this Word. But the character of those men, as Jesus describes them, <laughs> with these seven woes, was unfaithful. And at the end of our lives, there's one of two things we will hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Or, depart from me. I never knew you. Essentially, not good, unfaithful servant. And Jesus has come to the end of his rope, if you will. There's something important that we learn from this too. We, we see God as patient, but I want, I want to make this clear. God is a God of patience, but he's not ever patient. There is such a thing as an end of God's patience with us. And Jesus, from what we know as uh, chapter 21, again, probably around verse 12, uh, he begins teaching in the temple courts. And all of what's taking place, all the way to 24, chapter 24, verse 2, is taking place in the temple courts. And everything Jesus says and teaches and does is not just a, a lesson in the, the sense of the word that we would understand a lesson, but it's a symbolic lesson that this nation has become unfaithful. If you think about the, the parables again that we saw in chapter 22 and chapter 21, these parables, for example, the, the master who owns this vineyard, who, who sends people and eventually sends his son to reap a harvest and gets nothing and they kill his son. This is what the nation has done. This is what the nation is doing to Christ. And Jesus is angered with these false shepherds. When you see the word woe, there's seven woes. Most Bibles will, will actually have that as a subheading there. The first 12 verses are more of a, a warning. Not to the Pharisees, but to those who have no choice but to listen to them as the leaders in their day. And the rest of the passage, down to about verse 36, essentially are judgments. Woe is not a warning. When you hear these woes, it is a, a type of judgment. In other words, Jesus has rightly assessed their hearts and is now saying, this is what defines you. The things that he's defining in these woes, this is what is your identity. And because of that, I have nothing left to do at this point but to pronounce judgment. 
And he, he pronounces some very serious judgments. I want you to notice Jesus is angered by this, but he's also saddened. Look at verses 36. Or 30, 37 through 38. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You see this picture there. We see, we've seen this before, hens protecting their chicks. Jesus is acting and speaking in love. He's expressing that God has been patient, that God has been patiently working to, to call and to protect His people and to, to bring them under His loving wings, in a sense. But they're not willing. We've been going through the book of Romans. We're in chapter 10. Um, at the end of chapter 10, Paul quotes Isaiah and says that basically there's prophecy where God says, All day long I've held my hands out to a stubborn nation. And the end of that kind of stubborn unbelief is what we see in this passage. Jesus is angered. Jesus is saddened. But Jesus is a good shepherd. He's protecting His people. And I would say even through these statements, He's, he's giving one final chance for those who hear and who will hear and turn to not fall into the category of stubborn unbelief that marks these Pharisees and scribes. So we'll just, just look at a few of these characteristics. One of them actually starts in verse 5. The characteristics of these teachers. Everything they do is done for men to see. They make their phylacteries <laughs> why? And the tassels on their garments long. So just maybe help you think about this. Phylacteries were basically a box. Maybe maybe some of you know this already, but those were basically little leather type boxes that those people in those positions would have, and they'd be filled with different types of scriptures from God's word that they'd be memorizing, that they'd be thinking about as they went through their day and did their different tasks and trying to apply to life. And so what he's saying is, these things which represent their position, they haven't just had a little box, but they make sure that, you know, well, my box is six inches wide, and another one, well, goes back home, and, well, my box is ten inches wide. They want to make sure that people see they have a big box, you know? And don't forget the box is filled with God's Word, you know? And they're, they're, basically they're using God to build up their self-esteem. Phylacteries. Sometimes it would be held on the forehead. Sometimes it would be hanging above or around the front of the chest area. You can find pictures of this stuff on the internet nowadays. And the, the tassels has to do with a type of garment that um, was like a prayer shawl. right? Something, something like a prayer garment. 
And so he says that, you know, they broaden their phylacteries and they make their garments extra long. There's probably multiple ways we could talk about how this is done today. But they practice their faith for the purpose of receiving honor. For self-glory. This is a very heinous crime against God. God has in grace called the people to himself, given them his word for the purpose of them uh, loving him, loving his word, loving those who they're called to shepherd. And the main thing that they're concerned about at the end of the day is a pat on the back. This is why Jesus is not mincing words. You see what he says. He goes on to say, um, you make these people who, who are your followers, you make them twice a child of hell. These are the kind of statements that he, that he uses to define them. You, you, you go over land and sea to make one disciple, one follower. And when they become a follower, they are twice the child of hell. And he says, how will you escape being condemned to hell? In verse 33. What, what does this language mean? This has to do with the fact that by nature, we are not children of God because we are born in sin. But because of God's grace, through faith in His Word, we can become His children. But if you have people who are doing what they're doing in these positions for their own good and not for God's glory, then there's people following them who are being trained like that. These are corrupted shepherds, corrupted leaders. And Jesus has no choice but to pronounce this judgment on them. But Jesus is not doing it in a bitter way. His heart is broken. And so we see both of these things expressed by Christ. A genuine holy anger towards them. And God has a right to be angry when we use positions of authority, whether they're ongoing positions or someone shares a position of authority for a moment and they're misused. Because God has created all things for His glory. He has a right to be angry when we take the spotlight from Him. But one of the things that marked the Pharisees and their character, which we saw in chapter 15, was that they elevated their traditions to the level of the Word of God. And so Jesus is angry about this. They had devised a system that is run as much by their own traditions, if not more, than by the Word of God. And so people's faith are being put in the traditions of men and ultimately not in God. And this breaks Jesus' heart along with angering Him. 
Because these, this nation at large is rejecting their only hope, their only savior. But I want you to see the words again in verse 38. Your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Remember they had already chanted that in the what we know as the triumphal entry not long ago. They had chanted that towards him. So what could he be referring to? Well, this statement is a way of Jesus saying, I'm about to leave this temple and you're not going to see me again until I come in my final glory. As Revelation puts it, coming in the clouds. They will not see him again until that moment when he cracks the sky and makes all things right, makes all things new. And then we have these words in chapter 24. And this brings us to the final point, the creation of the new by replacing the old. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? I tell you the truth. Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. This was a twofold promise. The first fulfillment of this promise came in about 70 AD when that temple was ransacked and destroyed by a little war, a little battle that broke out. That physical temple was torn down. But Jesus was also referring to the fact that not only will the temple be torn down, but the fact that it didn't matter that that temple was torn down was related to the fact that Jesus had come to establish a greater type of temple. And notice this, in the midst of him pronouncing woes, judgment on the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes, seven woes, Remember this, every time you see the the number seven in the Bible, most of the time, it has to do with a type of completion, fulfillment. So here's Jesus standing in the temple courts, pronouncing this seven-woe judgment on the failure to be faithful to God through that temple system, and then leaves the temple and walks out. The picture Matthew is trying to show these primarily Jewish audience and us today by extension is this. That entire old system has been brought to its rightful end. But Jesus is making a greater temple. And as I mentioned, this this is moving Jesus' heart. It's heavy on his heart to say these words, look, Your house 
You call this your house? Your house is left to you desolate. After observing the prior prophetic judgments that he makes. This was a problem that existed for a long, long time in the nation of Israel. Every time they failed to remove the idols in their midst when they moved into different lands that God helped them to conquer, eventually they would fail to be faithful to Him and you'd have these accounts of God saying, I'm drawing back from you. I'm drawing back. I'm removing my glory. One of these accounts you can find in First Samuel, um, chapter 4 in particular. Um, the, the Ark of the Covenant had been captured by the Philistines. And the priest, Eli, he was sitting on a chair waiting to hear what had happened to his sons, um, Phineas and Hophni. I think was the name of the other one. Because they were in battle. But it tells us, before the verses I'm going to read in a second, it tells us that he was more concerned, believe it or not, about the state of the Ark of the Covenant. That little box that had been designed to represent the presence of God with his people. He was more concerned about that Ark and its protection than his own sons. And someone brought the news to him saying, both your sons have died on the battlefield. And then after that it says, Having heard that his sons died and that the ark was captured. when The, the scripture tells us, when he heard that the ark had been captured, the ark of the covenant, he toppled back on his chair and hit his head and died. Once he heard that the ark had been captured. And then one of his sons had a wife who was awaiting giving birth. She was pregnant. And she heard, in verse 21 we see this, she heard that her father-in-law had died, her husband had died in battle, and that the ark had been captured. And when she heard that the ark had been captured, the glory of God in their presence had been captured, it says she started to die. But in the midst of dying, she was able to bear this child, a boy, a son. And it says this in verse 21. She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. This was not a new thing. And many of the Israelites in Jesus' time would have been thinking about what Jesus was saying. Maybe in hindsight they would start to see that this was the greatest time and the greatest way in which the glory of God had departed from God's nation, Israel. Jesus walking out of this temple was a way of writing the word Ichabod. On the entire religious system. But I want you to. Think about the, the reaction of. Ichabod's mother. And Eli. How much are people today concerned. 
about the glory of God? Are we so concerned that we are doing and believing and thinking and speaking and acting and feeling according to the Word of God that it moves us in that way? A man could hear his sons had died, but when he heard the ark was captured, he drops dead. It's as if it's as if it's a picture to show if God's presence is not with us, we might as well not have life. As one psalm puts it, thy loving kindness is better than life. As we thought about yesterday in Sister Lilith's Harvey's funeral what makes paradise paradise is that we are with Christ and all that he is and all that he gives is ours not by faith but by sight that is the experience which the temple was supposed to communicate to the people of God there's a little bit of this paradise for now in your midst And Jesus pronounces this final judgment in these seven woes and walks out. But all hope is far from being lost. Because again, God will never again manifest His glory in earthly temples. Just just in case there's a little confusion. I'm not saying I believe there is, but just in case. There's no glory in this building that you're sitting in this morning. Or the one you're sitting in while you watch this on Facebook. Yeah, there's no glory in these buildings. And when we say, welcome to the house of the Lord, it must be understood that the house of the Lord is the people of God in the same way that the church is the people and not the building. And I hear people say that all the time. The church is the people, not the building. And I ask them, which people? Not just human beings but those who are indwelt by the Spirit of God. You see, this is what Christ came to do. No longer is God's holy temple found at one place. We don't have to travel to the Holy Land. The glory of what the Holy Land used to represent has come to us in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. By faith, we receive connection with the One who makes paradise what it is. We, the church of Jesus Christ, are the new temple throughout the earth. This morning, as we were getting ready, I heard my darling wife listening to a service of another faithful church that we used to actually go to, a church called Sunrise Community Church. It's one of the churches we have on island. non-denominational church not too much bigger than our church here but it's a local church in the Cayman Islands and I call it a church because they believe the true gospel there are churches throughout these islands that believe the true gospel as we do as we have here for many years almost a century and it it's interesting that in scripture One of the things that Paul in his prayers, especially in the book of Ephesians, Jesus in his prayers, Paul and the apostles in their prayers, they teach us that the main thing that we should be praying for as believers 
is that we and other true believing churches would remain faithful. Go, go and read through the prayers, maybe as an activity, and you know what you're going to find? And I'm not, I don't mean to sound insensitive by saying this, but we have to deal with the truth. They're not praying for health. They're not praying to not perish on this earth. What they're praying for is that the ultimate life, vitality, prosperity would be in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That churches would remain faithful to Him and His gospel so that the kingdom will be extending by our faithfulness in proclaiming His word and living according to it. That should be what fuels our prayer lives. We should pray for churches across the globe. And one of the songs that I heard while she was listening to that service while we were getting ready, it says, um, basically, I... I choose to praise, you know, not I feel like praising. I think the song is called Yes, I Will or something like that. But the line is that, that stuck, stood, up, stood out to me is, I choose to praise, to glorify the name above all names and nothing will stand against. There are people all over the world, Christians, pastors, who get up on Sunday morning and don't feel like praising. Quite frankly, who probably feel like just going back to sleep, believe it or not. But we must not live by feelings. We live by faith. One of the simplest acts of true faith, true saving faith shown in the life of a believer is getting up putting on your clothes and finding yourself in the midst of these gatherings once a week for a little hour or two for the purpose of experiencing the reality of what it means to be part of this global, eternal temple of God Almighty. We didn't need that temple to remain. Jesus told them, tear this temple down and I'll raise it back up. Because he is so glorious. He's referring to his own body, his own self. He is so magnificent that he embodies and gives by faith in him more than any temple could ever offer to countless multitudes of people. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians says this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14 through 22. For he that is Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, referring to Jews and Gentiles. He has accomplished salvation unity. To create one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in his body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility, both their hostility to God and their differences to one another. This is the only way any of us will have unity 
and be able to forgive one another at times too. Verse 17, He came and He preached peace to you who were far away, referring to the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, referring to the Jews. For through Him, that is Christ, through Christ, through Him, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. You see the Trinity in one verse there. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him the whole building is joined together and rises up, rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. You see there, that is the temple that is being built by Christ, in Christ, for the glory of Christ. This is the same temple which we see Revelation in its closing words in the second to last chapter, speaking of when we're, we're seeing a future heaven and earth. It's like, a, again, it's like a temple garden, a purest paradise. Chapter 21 of Revelation, first four verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. I read this yesterday. By the way, this doesn't refer to a literal sea. You know the sea is a pretty wonderful thing. For the Jews, the only understanding they had of the sea was a, a place of um, unrest and violent waves and things like that. So this was a way of saying, there was none of that. It is peace. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out from heaven, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You notice how the new Jerusalem is referred to in the same way as the church, right? Dressed as a, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling place, the dwelling of God is with men and he will live with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and will be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. There's coming a day when passing away will pass away. There's coming a day when every tear will be wiped away. Some of us have felt the comfort of that from the most loving ones in our lives. But this is the last wiping away. See, when, when, when God wipes away tears at the end of time, we will never cry again. There will only be joy and peace and glory. And Christ is accomplishing so much as He teaches. But God is not just a God of grace, but of judgment. And those who are failing, notice what He he begins by saying there in verse 13. He says, you hypocrites. What are hypocrites doing? They're not, they're not promoting God and His true gospel. What are they doing? 
shutting the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves, hypocrites, do not enter, and you stop others from entering. The very purpose for, for which offices, like the one that I, for now, I'm, I'm, I'm operating in. The purpose of these offices is to show the way to paradise. There is no other way. As I said yesterday, for those of you who are here, we were looking at a passage where Jesus was hanging between two criminals. And I said the world, the world is in a sense represented by one of these criminals or the other. All of us will die like one of these criminals or the other. We will either turn by a mysterious working of the Spirit of God. We will genuinely in and of ourselves repent and believe and say, Jesus, forgive me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Bring me into paradise. Or we'll die in silent rejection and spend eternity as he tells these hypocrites in hell. It will be him who brings us to himself and sends those who reject him to where we should all be. There's so much more that I could say that we'll look into again tonight, but I'll close by just asking this question. What is the position that we find ourselves in today? Notice how, how the disciples in chapter 24 were so caught up on this system that after those seven woes, they're still talking about the temple buildings. Jesus just pronounced these woes and they're leaving the temple and they're like, oh Jesus, look at the walls. Look at the wonderful structures. Jesus is like, listen, you're caught up on things that don't matter. Let us not be let us not be caught up on things that are secondary at best. But as the old hymn, uh, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling says, change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place. Let us be those who look to that moment when we cast our crowns before him and are lost in wonder love and praise may that be the gaze that we focus on and that moves us and defines us so that we can help to point others to this paradise to the temple of God which we are part of and to the coming new heaven and earth let's pray Father, we thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for so many years where we have either neglected to believe in you or even as we believe in you, have neglected to focus on what is of utmost importance. It is so easy for us to get caught up on things which might not even be something that you command or have told us that we should do. Maybe, maybe there are traditions that we made up or ideas that we have put into place, things 
that might be good in and of themselves, but become distractions. Help us to understand how we should prioritize our lives individually, how we should organize and prioritize our lives so that we are doing what you have called us to do. And we are seeking the kingdom of God and seeking you first. And seeking to keep you in that rightful place. Not just first, but preeminent. To keep you and your glory and your presence in highest esteem in our hearts. Help us to see even in the examples of people like Eli and his daughter-in-law who, who died at the thought of God's presence departing from them. Help us to be moved when we don't experience the reality of a closer walk with you. And let that move us to commit ourselves to seek you daily. To not find, but to make the time that is needed to walk with you. So that we would continually be transformed by the renewing of our minds and that our lives would increasingly become lives that we're doing your will and that we're worshiping you in all that we do. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you for your faithfulness to us. And we thank you that Jesus is building a temple. Even us, the household of God, the household of faith, and this temple will never be torn down. We thank you that you have sent the Holy Spirit to never depart from us. So that we will never have a moment in our lives, even when we don't feel it. We will never have a moment in our lives where the glory of God is apart from us. So help us to taste and see that you are good and to seek and savor that more in our lives. May we be good witnesses and may we use the platform of our witness as a church and individually in our jobs and wherever we are. May we use that to look for opportunities to testify about the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That is the only reason you have left us here. And to that end, we ask that you keep us faithful until Christ returns. In whose name we ask these things. Amen.